welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Somebody asked me one time, like, hey, tell me about your work. Like, what do you get to do? Or how, do you, how would you describe it? And I, I, I often have this picture of, like, a, a really curious kid who has, like, a backpack. And they get to, like, they're sent out into the Wild West, the unknown, to go, like, find something interesting and, and fun and extraordinary and, like, bring it back to the community. So, like, what I imagine myself doing is bringing my backpack with all the things that I've found back to you guys. And we open it up and we just kind of look at it all together and say, wow, this is amazing. So that's what I'm hoping happens today. Um, sometimes when we read the Bible, it, it, uh, you know, we'll read a passage and I'll sort of look at, or I'll try to pull out little, little bits, nuggets, salient points, so like a tour guide would along the way to say like, maybe this looked ordinary, but it's actually quite extraordinary and here's the reasons why. Uh, and sometimes we sort of, um, we, we find a topic or an idea that we want to talk about and we, we look at the scriptures to inform us and how we're to think about those things. And then sometimes we just go on a journey uh, through the text. And so that's what we're going to do today, hopefully. Uh, we're in John 19. We're in a series called Eat This Book, part of the narrative lectionary. And so as we make our way through Lent, we are in uh, John's gospel as we do that. So we're making our way towards uh, the cross and the resurrection, which is coming in a couple of weeks on Easter. And so um, we are in a, uh, a passage that's a continuation from last week. We're looking at the, the, the trial that Jesus undergoes through or with Pontius Pilate, and that's in uh, John 19. And there are a couple of things that Pilate says, a couple of key phrases that are going to sort of send us out uh, on this journey, and we're going to end up right back where we started. And we're going to find, I think, that... Um, this question that sort of rises up or these questions that rise up about what does it mean to be human and what have we been given or what, what are we tasked to do as humans uh, that we will, we've been here before. Uh, in the scriptures, people have been here before and I think we as people have been here before. So John 19, if you have a Bible, stand if you can and we'll read from the text and then we'll jump in. John says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Gather there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to, him, said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate answered. We have no king but Caesar, 
the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed over them, handed over to them to be crucified. Pray with me. God, as we uh, turn our attention to your word and we gather around this story, I pray that uh, says, you, you say in, in, uh, often that he, him who has ears to hear and eyes to see. And I pray, God, that because those things aren't a given, that you would uh, give us ears this morning to hear what you might be saying. Give us eyes to see you for who you really are, I pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So what does it mean to be human, and what are we given to do, or what are we asked to do, or what's our responsibility, what have we been given? These are a couple of questions that are going to sort of be the foundation for this journey that we're going to go on, and I'll just warn you, um, we're, we're going into the deep end of the pool. I was once with a mentor coach of mine, and I said, hey, would you listen to some of my, my teachings? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. So he listened, and, and he came back, and he said, you know, Micah, I think you should maybe like take it down a couple notches in terms of, you know, like, intellectual. And I said, well, I just think there's a lot of churches doing that, so no thanks. <laughs> so we're going to go deep on this one. We're going to go hard. We're going to go ham. Is that a thing? I heard somebody say that the other day. We're going to go ham. I, don't even... I said, what does that even mean? They're like, we're going to go hard, so we're going to go ham. Here we go. Our journey begins with the King of England in 1936. On December the 11th, 1936, Edward VIII gave a radio address to the British Empire in which he abdicated the throne and the crown, which was rightfully his. This is, by the way, the setup for the story, uh, which is also known as The Crown on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Season three is coming out soon. It's very good. But he did this in order to pursue a relationship with a woman that he had fallen madly in love with. So in the years leading up to 1936, Edward VIII falls in love with this woman named Wallace Simpson. The problem was that Wallace Simpson was previously divorced, which was a strike against her, and she was currently married, which means that he was having an affair with her. Also not, um, you know, recommended... <laughs> so to speak. So the affair goes on for quite some time, and in fact, um, to the knowledge of Wallace Simpson's current husband, they sort of made some deal uh, to enable this affair to happen, and some would argue that Simpson didn't want to marry Edward VIII in the end, but would have rather stayed with her husband, but in the, in the deal that was brokered to enable the affair, her husband ended up falling in love with another woman. Don't you hate it when that happens? Jeez, it's just the worst. That's a joke, everybody. Come on, wake up, 11 o'clock. There we go, there we go. So Edward, he intends to tell his father, who's George V, about this, this woman that he's fallen in love with, and unfortunately he dies, and the crown is then thrust upon Edward VIII, because that's how it works. He was the next in line for the crown. Eventually, Simpson divorces, which enables her to marry Edward VIII, but not without great cost. So on December the 11th, 1936, King Edward VIII abdicated the throne and the crown, which sent shockwaves through England um, because these were rightfully his. And he did so to pursue a relationship that he deemed that he couldn't live without. Question for you this morning. Have you ever had something in your possession or that you were entitled to and then you exchanged that for something you thought you wanted? And then that thing that you thought you wanted wasn't what you thought it would be or didn't do what you thought it would do. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like how we do this? The grass is always greener on the other side, they say, right? Um, beadlock, loose tenoning jig, friends. 
So I have this project I'm working on. Speaking of woodworking, I'm building this giant desk. It's 36 inches deep and 72 inches wide, and then it's got another section over here that's like 20 by 40. And it's maple butcher block, so it's really, really heavy and gigantic, and I have to join these two pieces together. Sometimes when you join wood together, you use what's called a biscuit joiner. It basically like cuts a slot in the wood, and then you put a biscuit in there, and you put glue in there, and you clamp it all together. But I've got 76 inches to clamp together, which is giant, right? So I'm just racking my brain trying to figure out how I'm going to put this thing together because somebody's paying me to do this, and I don't want them to call me back ever after I give it to them, right? So I'm like, how am I going to get this thing together? So I went to Rockler Woodworking, which, by the way, if you haven't been there, I'm telling you, it is just so cool in that store. No? Okay. I could spend hours, I could spend days there. So awesome. So I'm in there, and I see the beadlock tenoning jig, and I'm like, that's it. That's how I'm going to do it. That's how I'm going to put this thing together. And it's kind of like, I won't bore you with all the details, but I thought to myself, that's how I'm going to do it. So I have this gift card, and I spend that and a little more on the beadlock tenoning jig, to put this desk together. Well, I get home and I start you know, trying to practice on this because you never want to try the first time on your project. You know what I mean? That's just not a good idea. So I'm practicing and I, re I realize this is, gonna be in this is in impossible to get this thing lined up because I need like multiple holes along the way. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. So here I am and I realize that likely how I'm going to put this thing together is the biscuit joiner that's on my shelf. After all is said and done, spending hundreds of dollars on this dumb tenoning jig, which I thought I needed and wanted, and would solve my problems when I had the very thing that will likely solve the problem. You ever been here before? You're looking at me like I am the only human that's ever done this before. Okay, I'm, you're with me. Are you with me now? Okay, so we do this. Um, Edward VIII abdicates the throne, what's rightfully his, what's in his possession, in order to have the thing that he thinks he wants or that will satisfy him. And in the end, history would say that they were both miserable um, after all was said and done. Now, let's move a little bit further up the coast. We're going to stick with the UK. We're going to go to Oxford, England, and we're going to look at the Ashmolean Museum. So in front of you, some of you, are pictures that look like this, right? You're going to want to find them. If you're over in this section, there's one here. Here you go. Grab that. You guys over there. Pass this down the row. And if you're in a row, actually, there's nobody else after you all. So just make sure it gets to the row behind you. And then whoever finds it or ends up with it, it's yours to keep. That's my gift to you. First hour, I had to be real sure, real specific instructions. What you're looking at, and if you're at the end of this and you don't get it for a few minutes, this is called delayed gratification. It's great. You should try it. You're looking at a picture of the Ashmolean Museum, and in the entrance to the museum is this hallway, and on the, in the hallway, you're surrounded by, or on your right and your left, are these carvings, which this is a close-up of on the bottom. And what these are, they're carvings of the Roman emperors. And so uh, archaeologists have found these, and they've dug them up and found them all over the Roman Empire, out in the villages and far, far from Rome. But the fascinating thing is, they don't find any in Rome. They're carvings of the Roman emperors, but they don't find any in Rome itself. They only find them out in the boonies, out in the far places, the far reaches of the empire, which begs the question, why? Well, here's what's happening. The purpose of these statues is to show the local people who are far from the empire what the emperor looked like, what the king looked like. And the emperor, of course, lived in Rome, and so they didn't need them in Rome because they had the direct, they could see the person. 
So the empire goes to great lengths to have these statues carved in the likeness of the emperor and then sends them all over the Roman Empire as a reminder to the people that this is the person who ensures your safety. This is the person who brings you school and education and water and viaducts and theater, and this is the person who brings you peace. The idea of putting an image of oneself in the country you rule over is actually not a new idea. Other empires have done this before, and others empire, other empires did it afterwards. But this is actually a key to understanding Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface, and the, the Spirit of God hovered over the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light and saw that it was good and separated the light from the darkness. And then God said, let, the vault, let there be a vault between the waters. And he called it the sky. That's what he did. It's right there in my notes. And then God said, let the water be gathered so that there's land in one place and water another, and there was land and there was sea. And then God let the land produce vegetation, plants, with seeds of future life in it. And then God said, let animals populate the land and animals populate the sea. And there was a cacophony of life and animals and plants and seasons that marked the rhythm of all that God created and called good. And then on the sixth day, God created human. And God breathed into Adam, the, the human, and animated Adam, this first human being. And the scripture says that this being bore the image of the divine. In our likeness, we will make them male and female. And insofar as they are male and female, they will bear the image of the divine. So God doesn't plant statues in the far reaches of the garden to remind or suggest or be pictures of God's resemblance and image, but rather God breathes life into humans who walk and breathe and play and care and tend and steward and rule over creation. Genesis chapter 1 says that the humans were to rule and subdue, to tend and till, the King James would say, the creation that God made. Actually, the text says... God comforted Adam and Eve into the garden to tend and till, to be rulers. Essentially, what God is doing is placing in creation these humans so that God can rule and reign over creation through these image bearers placed within the garden. Humans are the images placed throughout the kingdom to remind and point to the one who's made it all. So humans are the royal line, as it were, with the responsibility by proxy to enact the good and just and caring and loving hopes and dreams of God for creation. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about Genesis 1 this way, but this is our job. This is what we were intended to do. This is what we were made for. We are image bearers of the divine, and we represent, or by proxy, we, we enact or execute the hopes, dreams, rule, reign, love, mercy, justice of God that God intended for all of creation, which of course creates flourishing for everybody. The Jews called it shalom, peace. So this is what we were made to do. What is the story of Adam and Eve if it's not a story of abdication? Edward VIII abdicates a throne that's rightfully his for something he thinks will satisfy. What do Adam and Eve do according to Genesis 1 poem? Well, it's Genesis 3 actually. They abdicate what was intended to be theirs, this seat of authority to rule and reign. 
to execute the hopes and dreams will of God in creation, to be the, the viceroys is another old language, old word that's used. That's the job of Adam and Eve. And yet, you remember this story, the serpent comes and says that insidious question, did God really say which, incre- which brings in doubt, doubting the, the character of God, the goodness of God, the benevolence of God. Like, is, is God holding out on you? Is God trustworthy? Or is there a benevolent universe that, in an abundant universe that you are now invited to participate in as image bearers of the divine? Or is God something other than that? These are, this is my commentary on Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve, the first humans, the rightful heirs of the garden of God, the proxy rulers and co-reigners with God in creation, they say what all toddlers say, I want to do it myself. You guys ever heard kids say that? I love that bit when little kids say, I want to do it myself. It's like, wow, this is human. This is what we do. Adam and Eve essentially say, I want to do it our way. I want to do it my way. This is when my good friend Rabbi Alan would start singing, I want to do it my way. Alan, if you're listening to the podcast, that's for you. They say, we're going to do it our own way. They live outside of this beautiful, flourishing ecosystem that God has created, which includes the gift, the grace, the benevolence of God to give humanity something to do, something to work with something to, some responsibility to have, and they say, no thank you. And this, of course, is what the tradition calls sin, what religious people call sin. It's essentially brokenness. It's, it's veering away from what God intended for in creation. And so, you might be sitting here thinking, Micah, that's all really interesting, but what does any of this have to do with John 19? Fair question. John, stick with me. John goes to great lengths to describe and present Jesus in dramatic ways. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the true vine. He's the shepherd. He's the bread of life. He's the resurrection and the life. And now, in chapter 19, here is the man and here is the king. Threads. John and other authors in the Bible take threads and weave them through their stories and we find threads that go all the way through the story of God in the Bible. This is one of them. Jesus, fully human and fully God. Fully human and fully divine. Here is the man and here is the king. Here is your king. So this is what John is doing and he says, if you remember John's gospel, you might think I'm crazy at this point, but I'll tell you, I don't think I am. I think I'm onto something. And this is what I found in my backpack, which I'm so excited to share with you. John's opens his gospel. Do you remember how John begins? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is he quoting? What's, it's Genesis 1, all over again. What John is doing is saying, listen, you've heard this story about Genesis chapter 1 and how the world began and how God made all these beautiful things and called it good. There's something afoot. There's something happening amidst the universe, and it's called new creation, and it's happening in and through this person called Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So John's gospel begins with God in the garden, and John's gospel ends, if you remember in John chapter 20, Mary mistakes Jesus for the what? For the what? The gardener. 
and it ends with a garden. Je- Revelation chapter 20 ends with a garden. Genesis chapter 1 begins with a garden. John's gospel begins with a garden and ends with a garden. Come on, people, it's not that hard to see. So, here's the man, here's the king. First one, here's the man. The question is, which one? And I'll just say, who, who's, here's the human, to include my lady friends in the room. Here's the human, and the question is, which one? Are we talking about the first line? Are we talking about this new line, this new thing, this new creation that's happening in and through Jesus? Paul, in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, argues that Jesus is the second Adam, the second Adam, the second human, or the last Adam, and in him new creation is happening. So which human are we talking about? In verse 3, Pilate says, here is the man. What is John doing? He's holding up Jesus, the human. And it's interesting that Jesus, the human, has a crown of thorns and a robe on his shoulder. Though bloodied and beaten and headed towards death, he's actually a, 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 a line of royalty, as it were. He's the new human. And then in verse 14, he says, here is your king. John is presenting the case, I would argue, that humanity in Jesus who's represented in Jesus and, the, and secured by Jesus the king, is being invited back to the garden where it all began and where it will all end. Is being invited to once again be image bearers of the divine in and through creation. Okay, Mike, that is very interesting. It's interesting theology. What's the point? Like, why does this matter? Because I think what we see in this passage is one of the moments of many where God's heart is on display. People think about God all the time and they think that God is this divine wrath being who's up there throwing lightning bolts or who's causing hurricanes and all kinds of things because of the bad people in the world. All sorts of beliefs about God. But what do we know about the divine? I would suggest, according to scripture, we need to only look at Jesus. And what we find here about God, that we, or what we learn about God because of Jesus is, here is Jesus inviting humanity back if this is what we were created for and we gave it away and we give it away every day where we say, I don't want that responsibility or I don't want to participate in that story or I don't want to be that kind of person in the world, we give it away and here Jesus stands and says, I am the human, the rightful one and the king who's the only one who can take back what was given to Adam and Eve in the first place. This responsibility to be co-reigners, rulers and reigners in creation. And you may think, like, I don't even talk like that, Mike. A ruling and reigning, what does that even mean? Every day you make choices to participate in a story. And that story shapes the world. And it's either one that serves you in the end or someone else. And the scriptures is telling the story that the one that serves you in the end only leads to brokenness and death. And it doesn't end well for anyone it's a zero-sum game. The way to life, the way to flourishing, the way to hope and justice and, and, and for all is actually to live your life in service of others, which is what Jesus says. And so here's Jesus, the man, the king, and standing saying, follow me. It's this way. What you've given away, what you abdicated, which was rightfully yours, I'm now inviting you back into it. That's grace, friends. Do you deserve this? Do we deserve that? No, we don't. And yet... Here is God, the divine heart on display, pursuing, desiring, longing for, wanting, calling us back to be the humans that we've been created to be. 
Let me close with two thoughts for you to think about. The first is this. At the end of this story in John's Gospel, chapter 19, the the Israelites, the Jewish leaders, say something that is just absolutely mind-boggling. These people are like the, this is like the, 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 what's the, in Rome, the, um, the Pope, where does he live? This is like the Vatican, like speaking, and <laughs> like the top of religious life in Israel. Are you with me? You tracking? They say, Pilate says, am I to crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. The Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrew people who have one God named Yahweh, who's been faithful all the way from Genesis chapter 12. And they say in this moment, we have no king but Caesar. Question for you. How do you get there? How do you get to a place where you have become the very thing that you hate? How do you get to a place where you've become so numb to the fact that you are the opposite or you're going in the opposite direction that you were intended to go? And I'm actually not going to answer this question for us this morning. I want you to think about it. Like, what kinds of compromises do you have to make along the way to get to that place where you say something of that gravity? We have no king but Caesar. Like, you are lost in a foreign land. How do you get there? How do we get there? Where we've become the thing that we hate, that we despise, that we said we would never become. And the last thing I'll offer, just to think about as we conclude, I'd I'd say it this way. I think we get what we want. And here's what I mean by that. Pilate goes to great lengths to do all he can to keep Jesus off the cross. It says that Pilate tries to convince them not to kill him, and the Jews will not relent. They say, bring him out, bring him out kill him, crucify him, and Pilate's giving him all kinds of reasons, like, I don't think he's, there's nothing to charge him on. Let's flog him, and then maybe they'll, they'll pipe down. But no, they just keep going, and Pilate does everything he can to keep them from making this choice. And then in the end, relents and hands Jesus over to those who want him. Which sounds a lot like what Paul says later when he talks about people being handed over to their desires. I think we get what we want. For me, free will is absolutely critical to preserve when we're talking about God and the Bible and what does it mean to be human and who is God. Free will would say that love isn't love unless it's a choice. And if God is love, then choice has to be real. And I think that we get what we want. If we spend a life in pursuit of and desiring and longing for friendship and communion with the divine, I think God honors that and has made a way to do so in Christ. But if we spend our lives spurring the pursuit of the divine and the invitations of God and saying, I don't want life with you, I think God honors that in this life and the next. Which is why when you come to church on a Sunday morning, it's kind of a setup. Like, you know, we're, I'm supposed to, we're supposed to do these things and la, la, la. But the, like, we're talking about really serious stuff here. And this is a big deal. Like, why are you here on this planet? What's your purpose? What, what's the point of your life? These are the questions that I want you to consider. And the scriptures is telling a story that shapes the world because stories shape the world. And we live our lives influenced and based on the stories that we believe to be true. And so what do you believe to be true? Is this just some sort of book that somehow made it here? And is this guy just some random dude? Or is there something happening here? 
I'm refraining the desire to sing right now. Something happened. So that's all I have for you this morning. A small, inconsequential thing to think about. That's also a joke. I want you to consider which story shapes your life. And is it this one? Jesus says, John says in this gospel, you have been given the great gift of being image bearers of the divine and in all kinds of ways we've shed it. We've given it away, we've abdicated it and Jesus stands here as the man and the king, the only rightful one to bring the two together and says, it's in me, this is the way home, who wants it? Follow me. So, let he or she who has ears to hear listen and eyes to see. Pray with me if you would. God, this morning as we take a few moments to be silent and to pause from our busy lives, I pray that you would make known to us, impress on our hearts, speak uh, that still small voice of your spirit the things that are true. If anything I have said isn't true, God, I pray that it would be forgotten. I pray that it would just fall off the end of this platform and never be heard again. But if it's true, I pray that it would ring out like a, like a note that belongs in the symphony. I pray that it would, res- it would resound in our hearts and in our souls. So God, do that now as we take a few moments to be quiet and as we respond in song and in prayer. Speak to us, I pray. Would you stand for a benediction as we close? The Bible is 66 books long and thousands of words, and it's a giant story, and it's really, really simple too. God created everything, including you and me, to bear the image of the divine who created it and invests us and trusts us with a responsibility to be people of love and of hope and grace and mercy and justice and beauty in the world, reflecting the image of the God who made it. And in all kinds of ways, we give it away. And Jesus stands here and says, it's yours. Here's a way back. So follow. Know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his face to shine upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord's lifting up his countenance to you giving you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen and amen and amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter and with the community. See you next time.